So David Lynch released a, a short film this week. Yeah. What did Jack do, Chandler? What did Jack do? All Jack is guilty of is loving. To Tatabon. <laughs> to Tatabon. The, the moment it just cut into a musical, it was like, this is perfect. I wasn't on board before, but now... I was on board from the second I read the plot description. I liked it, but it didn't reach like full Lynchian, I love this levels until... He started singing about his chicken love. I'm not going to say it's like a Lynch masterpiece, but I was thoroughly entertained. And I mean, how many other movies are you going to see about this subject matter? Very important subject matter, might I add. Yes, the the uh, the monkey demographics have long been oppressed in our society and he's bringing light to... <laughs> monkey noir as a subgenre has all been all but disappeared over the last few years. I'm glad David's bringing it back. I think in one of his older like bonus features, he talks about, and then there's a monkey. And I've never seen anything by David Lynch that has a monkey in it. And I think he was referring to this. Well, David Lynch bonus features are some of the most entertaining bonus features you can put on a Blu-ray. He is the embodiment of his own movies. He in really a, in a is. human form. Well, that's this year, but we're not here to talk about this year. We're here to talk about the past 10 years. Yes. And, you know, the podcast is 10 episodes old. We are, we're reviewing the 2010s. That ten we are. of our favorite movies from the 2010s on episode 10. Coincidence? Is it really episode 10? It is. Oh, wow. I, I planned it all. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's a special episode. Yeah, a very special episode. What happened last time? What, last episode or last attempt at this one? Last attempt. Uh, well, we talked for about two hours and I realized that I didn't have a single bit of audio. <sighs> well, Still not entirely sure what happened, but I'm pretty sure... It got deleted along the way. Uh, either either that or I never pressed record to begin with. <laughs> There's a slight chance I just never hit record. And my brain was rejecting the hypothesis. I feel better about it if you never pressed record because then we didn't lose anything, really. That's true. That, that does sting a little more, knowing you had it and then you dropped it. So we've talked about this before, meaning last week, but what is the best year of the decade? Best year of the decade? Well, up until about four or five months ago, I was a strong contender for the year 2014. However, these last three months have been some of the best movie-going experiences I've ever had, and recency bias aside, I'm going to have to go and say 2019 was the standout year of this entire decade. I can't necessarily disagree with you because it was like uh, past couple months, October, November, December is just one after another of wonderful movies. It We were spoiled, I think. There really for, has. For and I keep much. thinking it's recency bias. I have given just about every single one of my movies that I've given a, a five to in this past uh, year a thorough second examination. And all six of them, I thought, yep, it is this great. It's just a very fortunate year. It's also not necessarily recency bias, because recency bias would be if you, like the last thing you watched, you put on your favorite of all time list. This is, like, true. we know there, you can tell if a movie is good or not pretty quickly. Whether it'll stand the test of time is another question. But they, there have been great movies. And of course, I would like to submit 2017 because I would disagree with you about 2014. I think 2014 has I know some good stuff. But 2017, I think, has a it's more consistent mm -hmm. for me. I think well, across the board, just, there was some good stuff being just, released. Just so we can get 
you know, an audience a little reminder as to what happened in 2014. I'm just going to go through the big ones. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, Birdman, Whiplash, Gone Girl, The Lego Movie, The First Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, Nightcrawler, Interstellar, if you're into that sort of thing, What We Do in the Shadows, Godzilla, which I enjoy, Inherent Vice, and yeah. But no, I agree. 2017 is also a strong contender. 2017, we've got Blade Runner 2049, mm-hmm. uh, Twin Peaks The Return, whether or not you want to call that a film, Lynch does, Phantom Thread, The Florida Project, Lady Bird, Get Out, Dunkirk, John Wick 2, The Post, The Myward Stories, Coco, The Last Jedi, Three Billboards, Faces, Places, Mother, uh, Shape of Water, Mudbound, Big Sick, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, I was going to say ch- Killing of a Chinese Bookie for a second, <laughs> You Were Never Really Here. And a bunch of other stuff, but point is, this this has been a pretty great decade. Also, night is short. Walk on, girl. This is this is true. I'm sad that we lost the entire conversation because I, I know we don't have the time to go through it again. But perhaps succinctly, let's put uh, the question that I put to you last week was: My dad often tells me that movies have gone downhill. They're all commercialized, and he never sees anything that he, he thinks is really great anymore. So what is your response to people who think that the art of cinema is dead? I don't think that's true. I also think that, if anything, movies have just been getting better due to the sheer amount of accessibility that you can get your movie on. Uh, It's harder to find good movies, but there's a lot more good movies, I think. But if you're looking strictly into the movie theaters, you're probably going to be disappointed for a majority of the year. Yeah, I don't really go to the normal movie theater all that often amc started to play more independent movies as of late because they i think they rebranded it they have artisan films that they have so it's like a separate section that they do and they started at least the one in tucson they started playing a bit more but i have the loft uh, which is you know a fully independent movie theater so they play a lot of like the niche stuff that doesn't get a huge release and that really kind of colors my perception of movie going experiences because I go there and I think, oh, wow, everything that's being released is great. But that's because I ignore 90% of the stuff that comes out every week at AMC or a bigger uh, And I think I think just about most years in movie going, you can point to like three or four good movies that were wide release, but a majority of them will be, you know, pretty forgettable. I don't think that's specific to this time. No, certainly not, because you have movies like Godfather and all the way back to Casablanca, stuff like that, like the big classics. Can people name that many more movies that were released in those years? Probably yeah. not, because a lot of the the forgettable, just commercial stuff has fallen by the wayside, and only the, 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 the artistry that stands the test of time and that people care about, that's the only stuff that remains. So it's kind of a perception bias for people living now. Yeah. I just feel like it's a thing that happens to a lot of people as they get older. They they stop to mature and they stop seeing the world around them as it evolves and just sort of stay in what's comfortable with, for them. Not accusing your father of that, but uh, I feel oh, like please accuse. A, <laughs> I feel like it's just a thing that happens when you get older. I hope to not have that happen, but yeah, movies are one thing that I will not let my perceptions succumb to. They've always been great. They'll always be great. You just have to find them. So the past week actually has been very kind of busy for the two of us because 
when we originally recorded this, we didn't we did not have the 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 film sync's official top ten of the decade list done. Mm-hmm. But now we do. We do, yes. But we're not talking about that. What we are, are we talking about? We are talking about our individual top tens. Our our favorites. Yes. The, the one that is on the website. Yeah. Well, I I think these are the best. They're definitely more of a, a subjective opinion. But definitely more, because I disagree with a few of them. But well, yeah, the, I have, I think I have a few in here that could be considered the best on a more objective uh, scale. But there's at least four picks that here that are very personal, and as far as what I look for in movies, they hit every one of those beats. We we share in our top ten of the our favorites list. We share at least four movies we together. Do. We do, and those four movies also happen to appear on our. The film sinks official. List. Yes, I also just want to make a the reference to that whenever we do publish that article. That you know, I've looked at a bunch of other top movies of the decade lists online, and all of them are are very different. But you do see patterns over time, mm-hmm. and I think that ours is both a good reflection of kind of the general idea of like it includes the movies that are generally considered to be really great yeah but it also includes one or two that i think we champion more than maybe some other people do there is there is an element of personal touch in the top 10 list there's a few picks on our list that i think i don't i haven't seen in any other list and i think it's a shame that they're not there but we'll get to that later yeah but you know it's there's a lot to choose from there is a lot too much arguably too much but you can never have too much of a good thing except heroin just ask heath ledger now on my letterbox i put together i put together a list of i was doing the top 10 list of my favorites i was like this is too few and i made it a top 20 of the year of the decade of the decade because i needed yeah. to express more of the movies that i liked and i felt that 20 i re- i reached the number 20 and i felt this is good this is a good snapshot of the movies i really enjoyed from this decade yeah, I feel the same. I would literally, I wouldn't go as far as to to make a top 20, but I want to make a top 11 just because the immense guilt I feel for leaving First Reformed off this top 10 list just hurts. So for anyone listening, First Reformed, amazing movie. Barely didn't make the cut, but amazing movie. Don't you agree, Jacob? Yes, I agree. <laughs> uh, I am just messaging someone because this is our... This is the first episode that we're ever doing on the podcast with uh, guests, 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 which is fun, who they'll be also sharing some of their favorites of the decade. And a lot of them will overlap with ours and some of them will be unique. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. These are friends from our college days at the at the film school. Collaborators, friends, uh, family members in a pseudo sense. Yes, our creative family members. I'm doing something a little different, and Chandler was kind of dumbfounded that I was doing it, but I feel the need to explain. So I have my favorite movies list. I have my top 10, but I specifically deleted any movie that appeared on Chandler's list Yeah, and then slotted movies up from the rest of my top 20 so that, you know, I get to talk about more movies that I like. That's, I mean, that's fair. It's a win-win. It also makes the the episode longer, so I have to talk faster. This is true. This is true. We do have a good amount of overlap. I just looking at my top ten list from right here. I can see at least 
How how many did you say that we shared? Was it four? I think there's four. Okay, I think I know the exact four too. It's it's pretty. It's pretty easy to figure out. Oh wait, might be two or three. Three? Maybe I forgot what was on your list. Let me check. I feel like my number one, six, seven, and nine are the ones we share. Do you want to introduce Nathan while I get him up in the call? Yes. Okay. So our first is this chronologically is this our first guest? Chronologically, it is. Okay. So our first guest, the wonderful Ohio native who has been the cinematographer in both of our short films. Uh, he's an avid Lebowski fan. He's got an amazing dog. Uh, he's an alcoholic. Ladies and gentlemen, Nathan uh, Shuckman. Well, yeah. It took me a second Those to find out, the, yeah. uh, the share link. <laughs> I'm kidding. He's not an alcoholic. He's just, just a beer. A, a beer As a we all are. Beer. You like three beers. Yes. And they're not necessarily easy beers to find. <laughs> Two of them are foreign. <laughs> well, is Sapporo one of them? Sapporo... And so I love Pilsner. Pils- I like Pilsners, but oh, okay. specifically there's a Pilsner Urkel. It's a Czech beer that I quite like. Huh. And then, uh, oh, well, I guess four, four beers. Blue Moon and then 805s are my domestic. Oh, 805s are great. And Blue Moons. What about um, uh, the Kirin beers? What are those called? Oh, Kirin Ichiban? I'll have them. Usually I'll have them with... Sushi. That's what I always get Kirin Ichiban with sushi. Oh, I, I meant to say I usually I'll have them with a sake bomb. That's usually what they serve. Oh, okay. There's a sushi place I go to on the on right on the freeway that I always get Kirinichiban. And there's this video game called Yakuza that I play. Whenever I play that, I drink uh, Sapporo when I play it. If it was a movie, Jacob, if this video game that I've been playing is a movie, it would be one of your favorite movies of all time. I'm just saying that now. Oh, what is it? It's it's called Yakuza. It's a movie about these like, dual br- protagonists who don't meet until like the very end, who are both like deepened with the Yakuza. I mean, they're ex-Yakuza who are like paying back their debts and going against the Yakuza. And that's like the story. But they take place in these little parts of Japan that have just such absurd and weird little characters where you get roped into these uh, ridiculous side quests where you do like drunken karaoke and disco things and you chase around Japanese men running around the city in their, just their underwear. It's it's great. <laughs> it the, the, There's a lot of side quests from like, Jacob would love this if it was a movie. I'm sure I would. I think in my personal favorite movies of the of the decade, like the actual list, and not to spoil anything for the, the audience, I have I have a clear bias towards Asian cinema. It's great. Yeah, it is great. Oh, look, we have a Nathan. Oh, hey. Hello, Nathan. So you already said like, and here's and here's Nathan. Like you've already said that. And here's drum roll, please. Here's Nathan. Hey guys, uh, long time listener, first time caller. Well, good to hear from you, Nathan. Yeah, it's good to be on the show. I'm excited. How are you today on this fine January? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I had a, f- a full, a full two days of filming the past couple of days, so I've been focused, been busy. Where? So I'm happy. Outside? No, inside, thank God. If you want to know oh, the temperature okay. of Ohio right now, it is a, a balmy, it is a balmy, a sweaty 38. Wow. That's <laughs> oh, hot. It yeah. is. It's been, Ooh, uh, the window, past couple days friend. have been in the upper teens and lower single digits, so I'll take the 38. I was about to say 38's tropical at this I'm, point. I'm a, I, I was outside in a t-shirt earlier. Were you really? No. It's still cold enough to wear. I was about to say you fully reintegrated. A t-shirt is ludicrous in this temperature. But I guarantee when when 
when spring comes along and it starts getting in the upper 40s and lower 50s, I'll be outside in a t-shirt without question. That That's sweater weather. That sounds horrible, I was about to say. It's like 60 here and I, I go out in, a, in like a fleece jacket. I am the thickest of jackets I go outside in every morning. I am... Uh, way to bring me down this January. What's up? Uh, we should never trust Chandler to give a proper introduction. So how about you uh, explain who you are and your connection to us? Oh, wow. Well, like I said, you know, a long-time listener, first-time caller, happy to be on. I've known you guys for many a year. We went to school together. Oh, you are recording, yes? What do you mean? Yes, I'm recording, Jake. <laughs> Sorry, continue. I knew you were. Um, I did not. Yeah, I've known I've known you guys for a while. We went to school together. Um, we made a couple movies together. Mm, I'm a cinematographer. I'm left-handed. I'm six foot three. Are you really? Two and a half. He's he's in this. He's in this. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. If I'm six foot, I didn't think you were that tall. No, nah, I'm like six oh two. My God, I'm the shortest of all of us. Um, I, I like beer. Are we good? Lebowski is my favorite movie yeah, we're, of all we're time. Good. That's like the same. Uh, it's like the same intro I gave him. <laughs> it is. I find that interesting. <laughs> it's like I'll, you know, word I'll overlay them. I'll put them right on top of each okay. other, and you won't notice it. It'll just sound like both of you are talking at the same time. I hit those same beats, Nathan. That's that's. I even ended on the beer. That's, that did. shows something. I don't know what it shows. Maybe alcoholism, but it shows something. We have yet to introduce a single film on this podcast. Oh, although wow. we've talked about quite a few actually in the in the order of recording. But the point is, is we're going to let our good friend Nathan introduce his uh, one of his favorite of the decade, and I think it's on the rest of our list. Too. Oh my is, gosh! Yes. What an honor! Thank you guys. Um, I, I'll have to lead off with a film from 2014 by a little-known director named Wes. The film is titled Grand Budapest Hotel. It's indie, but I think it hit the mainstream a little bit. This is one of the best movies of the decade, certainly, and one of my favorites of all time. Easily. I don't think it would be an understatement to say it's one of the best ever made. I Certainly I in the argument for. What was your experience watching this movie? I had, uh, this is actually, it's kind of a story. Um, and we're taking it way back to high school film classes. I watched a movie by Wes Anderson titled Moonrise Kingdom. And I knew nothing of Wes. This is, uh, you know, I took the film class because I thought, oh, I get to watch movies for homework. That sounds great. And it turns out I actually learned a lot about filmmaking and discovered a passion. But I, I knew nothing about Wes Anderson and we popped in Moonrise Kingdom and I hated it. I thought it was just dumb, and I didn't get it, and I thought it was kind of weird, I'll be honest. And even years later, I watched it again, and I still find it kind of unsettling. I think Chandler agrees with me. Yep. A bit, I, yeah. Ugh. Second least favorite Wes Anderson movie. I'll fight. It's okay. Um, it's Yeah, it just, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and therefore, because that was my first Wes Anderson, and I understood that Wes Anderson kind of has a very specific style, and Moonrise Kingdom does capture that style, I will give it that. Um, I just assumed that I did not like Wes Anderson, period, in general, and I never went to seek out his other films, because I just assumed if all these films are like that, then I'm going to hate him. Until, I think it was, was it sophomore year? We were in Villa, Jake? Yep. Sophomore year. Uh, January 2017, I think. 
That's right. I saw the uh, the update or whatever, the memory, a couple days ago. That's crazy. We were so close to on the nose, but here we are. He, he sat me down one day in January, and he said, Nathan, listen, you're going to watch this movie, damn it. And I put up a fight. And you're yeah, going to like it. Yeah, pretty much. He said, you're going to watch it, damn it. You're going to like it. I said, no way, I'm not. And I went into the film wanting to hate it. I've never gone into a movie actively wanting to dislike something. Like I, I oh, that's like half. That's like half the movies I go to see. <laughs> I went into, um, for example, I went into uh, the Rise of Skywalker, not wanting to hate it, but like very indifferent, and I ended up hating it. But this film, I wanted to hate. Like I went in, like I'm gonna dislike everything about this because I know I hate him, and. Uh, by the end of the film, I loved it. I think I gave it a 9 out of 10, and it has since jumped to my third favorite movie ever. This film's fantastic. It's perfect in every way, from the acting to the cinematography to the color. It's wonderful. I love it. It's also hilarious. Oh my god, it's so It's funny. easily his funniest movie. Well acted. Mm-hmm. Ray Fiennes uh, absolutely Well acted is an it. understatement. Ray Fiennes, it's one of my favorite comedic performances ever it's one of the great uh like ensemble cast performances it's not even like it doesn't jump out to you as an ensemble but when you really look at the acting it is most certainly an ensemble william defoe it's got tilda swinton in it it does it's got it's one of the most tilda swinton-y roles ever she plays two characters jeff goldblum she plays the old lady and the casket she's buried (laughs) yep well that's the thing is that like Especially with this movie, because, you know, it's got one of the most insanely stacked casts ever. But, like, every character, I'm, you know, when I see him, I'm like, oh, that's Bill Murray. Oh, that's Tilda Swinton. Oh, that's Jeff Goldblum. But that that novelty runs off or uh, fades really quickly, and I believe them as characters. Even when they're so, that's, like, that sequence when they're just passing, they're, it's a, like a, a game of telephone between a bunch of different hotel managers. There are so many different famous people in that one little montage, but I don't remember who they are because all I remember is the distinct looks of each hotel and how it all works in the story. Great production oh, design. Oh, the production design oh is, I mean, is second to none. It absolutely crushes it. It's. I mean, we're talking about all the acting, but it's, you know, Grand Budapest Hotel represents... Cinematographer Robert Yeoman and director Wes Anderson had worked together on almost every other film that Wes Anderson had ever made, except for one. I can't remember which one. They have been working together for so long. And Wes Anderson, you can tell the evolution of his style. And this, the movie represents like peak Wes Anderson, where he and Robert Yeoman just kind of meshed together perfectly. They figured out what it was they were doing well and bumped it up a notch from... So much so from Moonrise Kingdom to make almost a, a perfect movie. I think we've we've discussed this numerous times before, but something we've discussed is the color palette of Moonrise Kingdom with that green and, and yellow. That might be a, one of the reasons why I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, but with this, the, the purple or the pink and the blue and the, like the pastel colors, it's gorgeous. And I, I love every second. Well, Moonrise Kingdom... As I said before, was I found the style to be obnoxious, just because it was so Wes Anderson that it was like it was it was it felt all style no substance, and you can argue that in comparison it looks tame to Certainly, Grand Budapest I think Hotel. That's very valid but argument. Grand Budapest Hotel is so 
ridiculously over the top that it wins me over again and i can't think of anything more like i can't think of any movie that he has where the style is this finely tuned in every aspect not just the color not just the production design but the score the writing the absurdity of the plot but how well it all works together it is just every it's one of those rare perfect movies where every little bit of it is just working so perfectly in harmony. See, I'd even argue that this film is more like more finely tuned and more his style than than uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, which he had literally one hundred percent control over since it's stop motion. He can control literally everything, and yep. I think this is more of his style. Yeah, those two movies are always like neck and neck as far as my favorite, and also Royal Tenenbaums. That's just because I find it his most emotionally interesting movie. But yeah, well, for you, me, the Fantastic Mr. Fox, that's just like stop motion is kind of like its own category. Sure. And it's such a different like a departure from because he's done live action and all that. And it's such a departure that I kind of really don't rope it together with his his live action stuff. Um, I don't know. It feels like a, a completely different kind of Wes Anderson. But, but it still definitely that. has Probably, his stamp. Like you can see his fingerprints oh, are all it over. It certainly yeah. does. Oh, yeah. Grand Budapest Hotel, it's, you know, they knew what story they were telling and they knew like the, you know, stepping in the the different narrators and all that. And they knew how far they could push the the aesthetics of the story so that they matched with the narrative. And so none of it feels over the top. It would be too much in another movie, mm-hmm. but in the way that, you know, Wes Anderson directs it and the story, it's all just wonderful and works in harmony with each and other you have um you have harvey Keitel and uh ed, ed norton are also in this film just to continue on to the the, the crazy number of a-list actors that are in this film and you you buy and believe uh, almost instantly that of their characters did we mention willem dafoe yet uh we might have but still it deserves mentioning again william dafoe is fantastic in this film he does he says i don't think he says he hardly says any no. words but he is just so menacing so intimidating. In because he has such a scary looking face. He's got like face. three lines of dialogue. Yes, but I remember everything that he does. Tell her he he's said, just oh, so... come home. <laughs> he was also, uh, yeah, he's, it's similar to his role in um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, where he's barely in it. Yeah. But I remember everything that he does. Uh, I also recommend um, Barnes & Noble has a film section. And most of the Bar- no- Barnes & Nobles I've been to sell the Grand Budapest Hotel script for like 7 or 8 bucks. I re- recommend just looking at it because it is so beautiful in its dialogue and just how literary Now, I'm is. curious. They're- how close, how accurate is the script to the final product? I think they use the shooting script, so okay. it's pretty Copy. much exactly. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. And it's so, like, the best scripts are the ones that can be read as novels, and this one is definitely one of the best I've read in that regard. It's just so, there's so many amazing poetic little lines. Now, here's something, here's a question that I want to bring up. I don't think it's something that we have discussed before, but there is certainly, in my opinion, to an extent, a uh, an unreliable narrator. And I wonder if that has ever colored either one of your viewings of the film. It's never colored my viewing experience, mostly because I never thought of it before. But, you know, when you bring it up, it makes complete sense because you are looking ultimately the entire film is looking through the eyes of a little girl reading a novel of a novelist who's looking back on, you know, 30 years ago when he wrote a novel that someone else dictated to him. 
So it's just lay- it's a layer cake of distorted narrations. It's just a way to remove it. All it does is remove the narrative so far from reality that I believe every absurd uh, twist that the plot takes. Yeah, so I, I I certainly agree with that. I never it never colored my viewing of it just because I uh, I guess I just believed the story that I was being told. But even looking at it through the the lens of the unreliable narrator, it does make complete sense. It's very grandiose and um, kind of large scale and very um, uh, emotional and more so than a normal story would be and it makes sense uh, looking back on it through that lens so final thoughts on grand budapest hotel it will it's great yeah it's one of the best oh you know for, no it's up say it. uh, oh. i'm gonna say from you know my 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 wes anderson ranked list changes from day to day but i do think at the bottom of my heart i know this one to be the best i have to make a special shout out i'm sorry you just heard jack I have to make a special shout out to this film for having one of my favorite shots in all of cinema is when uh, Zero and Agatha are on the carousel after uh, Zero just gives her just gives her the book and she reads it and we have a close up of Zero right in the carousel going up and down and then it cuts to a close up of of Agatha and uh, the lights are rotating in the background and it's slow motion and the lights are shifting on her face and it is one of the most beautiful and draws the most emotion honestly honestly it draws the most emotion from me of any shot i've ever seen it's true he does talk about it quite often i did a bit it's beautiful i love it the robert yeoman killed it with that one shot singularly that was the grand budapest hotel chandler I think uh, you should do the honors and pick the next movie. Well, the next movie on my list is one that I know that uh, Nathan has uh, sided with me on recently. Oh. And that is Taika Waititi's <laughs> What We Do in the Shadows. I just actually... And I've always been on your side. But, men- you know, yes, you have. Don't mention me. I just posted on a Reddit comment uh, quoting a line from this film. Today. Literally today. What today, was the line? Someone was posted... Like, what's the most underrated? It was an Ask Reddit. Someone posted, like, what's the most underrated thing or whatever? And someone said, biscotti, like eating a warm biscotti. And someone commented, oh, you'd like biscotti. And I, I commented, oh, I didn't know you'd like eating worms. <laughs> and I, I watched the scene to, like, make sure I had the quote right. And I was laughing the entire time. The entire time. Well, Chandler, give us your sales pitch for why what we do in the shadows is one of you know, the decade's best. If When you look at my list and you look at the rest of the movies on my list and there's a strong narrative throughout all of them they're all pretty well thought out as far as the plot and characters go and on the surface what we do in the shadows doesn't have a lot to offer as far as plot and story uh but it is just a very fun very inventively made very quirky mockumentary about vampires living in new zealand it's a movie that sneaks up on you like all great comedies it's not that funny on the first time but the second, third, fourth time, it just gets exponentially funnier. And I loved it so much, I made a short film ripping it off. <laughs> well, I can attest that you have done that, yes. Yes, I can yes. confirm. I'd say that of all the movies that we're probably going to be talking about, this is certainly the most visually uh, underwhelming, I think, for a lot of people. Ta- I will say underwhelming. Reaction. I'll say tame. Yeah, I just, because I know, I think my first viewing, I thought, this is pretty good. 
but that's exactly how I said my first amazing yeah and I think that was our reaction for all of us but it's grown on all of us to the point where I think all of us would you know it's on all of our favorites of the decade lists it's not in my top 10 but it is very close to that and I think a lot of people look at it and it's you know it's a mockumentary it's filmed in a very kind of down-to-earth style and it's not it doesn't have the the production design frills and color design that Grand Budapest does but it does immerse you in its world without question and it just it's it's a it's a gritty kind of grimy aesthetic that might be it doesn't have you know the the sheen that some of the more big production design stuff does but once you get past that it is hilarious it's well acted and it's just a good old time it's just so many different dumb little gags after one after another with some of the most beautifully quirky characters in the horror comedy subgenre and i'm just every time i go back to it there's something new that makes me laugh it's also a great parody of just the entire vampire genre of oh yeah they make movies. fun of like every type of like it's not just the nosferatu types there's a little bit of uh, lost boys in there a little bit oh, of yeah. um a good amount uh, of Lost Dracula, Boys. Nosferatu. Interview uh, with a Vampire. Interview I think. with a Vampire. I mean, the whole thing is... The, the original short film was called Interviews with Some Vampires. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we all, like Jake commented, we all had a very similar reaction the first time we saw it of like, oh, it was, it was pretty good. But something about the film, it, it sticks with you and you just keep thinking about it and like for me uh, the first time i saw it like jake said you know i had oh it was good i don't know what chandler was talking about though like it wasn't that great but uh, days passed and lines just kept sticking with me like you know what that that was pretty funny the buscotti line that was pretty funny the shame circle that i that was pretty good the werewolves that's that's funny and uh, the werewolves not swearwolves <laughs> The, like the, the second time you watch it, it like something clicks. Honestly, the second time you watch yeah. it, something clicks. You're like, oh my god! Because you probably get over about how this stupid is hilarious. some of it is. Because it then is the stupid. third, fourth, fifth time you watch it, it just gets funnier to the point where, like Jake said, it is one of the funniest movies of this decade. It is, and another reason I think is just because it has so many different kinds of comedy. I think the funniest line in the entire movie is, uh, I'll read it off. Um, I think we drink virgin lo- blood because it sounds cool. I think of it like this. If you're going to eat a sandwich, you would just enjoy it more if you knew nobody had fucked it. Yeah. Like, it's got it's got visual gags. It's got pratfalls. It's got genuinely clever lines and scenarios. It is just a goldmine of tiny little moments that don't really turn into a whole movie but the movie those moments themselves are so enjoyable that i can watch this thing start to finish and never pause it yeah i mean it's just it's just really kind of subtly well made i know there's a lot of like practical effects hidden in the film where you know they, they have one of those to... inception hallway yeah, they actually did yeah yeah and then you know they use some stunt doubles for some shots and a lot of like creative blocking and you would never tell because no, you, you know it's kind of like the office where it's it's meant to be filmed where like you're just going along kind of with these style. characters shaky cam yeah and it's it it all the the artistry and the creativity that went in behind it kind of fades in the background and but like on a second viewing you start to pick up on a lot of like the visual gags and like the cinematic 
techniques used to make some of those visual gags, which just make it even more interesting. And they, it's Taika Waititi, so they, it's great. Taika they try so hard. <laughs> they they try so hard to make it look like they didn't try at all. Yeah, yep. amen. And that's what I love. About even it. like the little like subtle stuff that lasts a second, like the like Viago's face on a cat. Like that last, oh, yep. uh, Chandler said is one part. of the f- his favorite moments in the film. But that last, uh, like a half a second, two seconds most, and it's CGI on the cat and the hand coming out of the backpack. Like that's green screen with the guy. Like it's legit filmmaking, but it it is meant to feel like it's off the cuff and like it's real. It's impressive. And before we before we move on to the next movie, I'd just like to throw a shout out to the TV show, which is gonna say. also pretty damn yeah, funny. Yeah, the TV show is very funny. Matt Berry is bah. hilarious. TV show's great. <laughs> Movie's great. It's worth. It's all worth your time. I will say, you have to see the movie twice, at least twice. Yeah. And the TV show is certainly not as funny as the movie, but it it's is still pretty funny. definitely hilarious and well worth your time. It's eight episodes, so uh, watch it. Taika Waititi's in it. Tilda Swinton's in it. Yep. Blood, Wesley Snipes. One of the best additions in the TV show is the addition of the of the energy vampire. Played by Nate from The Office. I can't remember the actor's name. But he is hilarious and a fantastic addition to the TV show. Oh, oh, yeah, the energy vampire. Yeah. Oh, so funny. Possibly the best addition. I love it. Oh, hey, actually, real fast before we get going. Monday, The Bachelor is the episode that I was on, so you'll see my name in the credits. Oh. oh. Yeah, so if you want right, to pull hold on. Up. Let me just order cable real quick. <laughs> oh. I hope someone uploads The Bachelor credits to YouTube. Just Sorry, the I'm credits. Gonna, I'm just going to wait for the Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, I, I get you a signed copy. <laughs> no, I'll record it. I'll send it to you. I'll send the screen cap of, like, the... the quarter-sized font as the next TV show is already playing. (laughs) (laughs) Enhance and zoom and crop. Enhance. (laughs) Enhance. You gotta, like, turn the corner in the new TV show just to see my name. (laughs) Before I, uh, we move on, uh, Chandler, where, what number is Grand Budapest Hotel in your top ten of the In my the top decade? ten of the decade? Yeah. Um, let me see. I'm pretty sure it's six. It's six, yeah. Uh, I didn't ask Nate to come with a top ten, so I don't think he has ranked, but um, I'm sure it's one of the, uh, you know, probably yeah, the best. I, if it's his third favorite movie of all time, which I'm the first is The Lebowski and the second is... 2001. Oh, I knew it was going to be a Kubrick movie. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Did you? Though? It I goes did. It, I did. Lebowski, 2001... Grand Budapest, Empire, and then either Lawrence or Boogie Nights. I'm not sure. It it would be either one or two if I made a list of 20 cents. And then Chandler, where is what we what do we do what we do in what the shadows? What do we do in the, do in the shadows is number eight <laughs> on my list. Uh, it's number twelve on my super list. Oh, so and I didn't. Yeah, make so not a list. not too not far too off. Well, that's okay. Didn't didn't want you. Thank to. you. All right. So let's let's enhance. <laughs> And go one step further and talk about my second favorite movie of the decade. And we're skipping there because this is a movie that, I don't know, Nate likes it's too. It's so. one that I've seen. I like it too. Yeah, so <laughs> it's a good one to talk about. But it is uh, one of the greatest sequels of all time, Blade Runner 2049. Mm-hmm. The final cut. <laughs> the only cut. This is the one God. with Harrison Ford's voiceover, right? <laughs> 
one where they drive off at the end to the the shining hotel. That's <laughs> uh, at the end. At the end, it's Harrison Ford and Ryan Gosling driving off together. I want a deep fake version of The Shining where you, someone has placed Harrison Ford's face. And, Harrison Ford and Sean uh, Young, Harrison Ford, Deckard and Sean Young into Harrison the Shining Ford's face on the kid. Indian cans when Jack is locked in the freezer. Someone make that. That's what? a deep cut. Room two thirty seven. Watch that doc. It's wild. No, I saw that the well, library. For some reason, we're talking about The Shining when we should Shining be talking yeah, about Blade the Runner, most beautiful movie. Blade Runner, the director's cut, twenty forty nine. The final cut is a film directed by Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Dennis Villeneuve. Bring us home, Jacob. Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Dennis Villeneuve. It's a sports reference. Sorry, guys. He's all over. He's killing with these references tonight. Just hitting home runs. I know. We, we the the three of us all have very different opinions on the the original. Blade Runner. I think it two is, of us have the exact same opinion. I think one of us has a different opinion. One of us opinion. is an idiot. <laughs> one of us thinks sure, the movie but... is boring as shit. I won't say who. Oh. Well, it was at one time my favorite it was. movie. I do remember that. Is this like still in your things, top ten? No. Wow, it's still in my top. I 10. think Jake, honestly, I, just I speaking have... like directly to you, I think that shows how far you have come from your freshman year until now. Oh, a lot of stuff. I I am currently in the process of updating my my favorite movies of all time list and what i've i've decided to do now is every time i want to update it every like six months i just start over from scratch and i have to remember the movies and if i can't remember what's on my old list it probably shouldn't very be very interesting and a a, a good a and good method it does actually cut some stuff Definitely. out but i'm sorry i didn't mean to do really blade runner 2049 directed by denis villeneuve from 2017 is quite possibly one of the most beautiful movies ever made. Roger Deakins was the cinematographer. It has excellent production design. It carries the legacy of Blade Runner from all the way back in 1984, I think. It carries that legacy and brings it into the 21st century. And the script is excellent at both paying homage to the old film while doing something completely new, telling a new story. And it's not like... It's not like your normal derivative sequel or remake or reboot, all that kind of stuff. It's none of that. It's its own thing, and yet it is deeply in love with the original. Yeah, it, it, it's it's how you do a sequel right. It's taking the story, it's taking the tones, the themes, expanding upon it without really rectifying or changing the arcs of the original movie. It's the it's a good example of how nostalgia can work for your favor and not seem pandering to those who already enjoy your series. It is so different as far as what it's trying to say than the uh, original Blade Runner, but it's so thematically... There's a lot of different themes that are still uh, sort of mirrored off each other in, the, in both these movies. The world is obviously still the same, but there is just... I feel like the... Int- it's it's a much bleaker world than the original Blade Runner, because there's you know there's a lot of nice little rain in the original Blade Runner, and there's still rain in the new one too. But I just feel like nice is not a word I'd ever describe the rain in Blade. Uh, Runner. I describe the rain well, as dystopian. I, I, well, it's dystopian, but I find the scene in the original Blade Runner where Deckard goes for the noodles. I that you know that first big introduction to the world. Hey. Hey, hey, uh, so, so, you so, wait. Nathan's uh-huh. just wrong, and that's okay. I find that scene absolutely breathtaking. 
and not dystopian weirdly enough but like you know stuff like on k's rooftop that famous shot or or him walking and being harassed by the giant naked anadarmus bless <laughs> uh those feel a lot more dystopian to me but yeah yeah this this is it's it's one of the best sequels ever made if not the best it's got some tough competition because you know godfather Part two, 2 empire strikes back and all Paddington that but... 2 it is, which it is in that realm, yeah. which tells you how good it is. Yeah, so if you couldn't deduce from my numerous comments, I do not care for the first one. But I will say, this uh, the sequel is fantastic. And I, did, I enjoyed every second of it. There's not a whole lot to not enjoy from the, like Chandler said, the story, the plot, the themes that are just interwoven throughout it. And the setup and the payoff. And uh, the Robin Wright is wonderful. Ryan Gosling's fantastic. Even Harrison Ford pulls uh, an actual good performance out of his bag, which is nice to see. And that uh, goes uh, nothing to say of Roger Deakins' cinematography. Finally winning him his first Oscar after 13 nominations. Um, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Um, it is uh, whatever it does, it takes the elements that are good about the first film and make them better. And it's it's wonderful. Not much else to say. I enjoyed uh, every second of it. It's gorgeous. The opening scene's wonderful with um with John Batista. I think it kind of encapsulates, especially visually, encapsulates what the film is as a whole. I also think it's one of the best endings of the decade. Yeah, one of the best endings. I think for me, what really does it about the movie, what really does it about a lot of my favorite movies of the decade is the the theme, the thematic, the thematic, uh, the thematic, uh, God damn it, the thematic uh, subtext of all of the movies. Yeah. And specifically with 2049, it, the ending is literally, uh, it's Kay who has gone through this journey of realizing that kind of like, the Lego movie that he's it's first uh, he's supposed to be like the special he's the the chosen one of sorts of this narrative and then the movie takes a a turn and says that in fact he's not the special one he's just some ordinary another one of the thousands of replicants that are made every day and the, the beauty of the ending is that he finds you know he has a choice to either you know, abandon Deckard or to do what the the replicant rebellion wants him to do. And the beauty of it is that he finds meaning and purpose to his life in his own way and that he doesn't have to be the special person. And ultimately, the climax of the film is he's just saving a guy and, you know, taking him, reuniting a father and daughter. And it's one of my favorite last little scenes of the decade where quite quite also kind of like Paddington 2 where it is a touching reunion between touching long lost reunion family members with some amazing music like yes. i also think a part of the, another part of the reason why the original works so well for me is i love vangelis's score and i think hans zimmer does a perfect recreation while also uh giving it a sort of modern contextualization of those sounds it doesn't sound as 80s the the score because the score score of the original is is very eighties as far as the synth tone oh yeah you know but that was a still a relatively new 
uh, uh, sound at the time. It fit, but this it one, fit for the time. It did. And this this new one still has those those uh, those earthy synth tones, but it definitely feels a lot more orchestral in the way that it's a lot more it has a lot more per, uh, percussion in it. Yes, yeah. This film, like it, this film, took like what worked. I mean, regardless of where I stand on this on the first one, it took what worked with the first one and expanded upon it and it kind of more or less modernized it, but. It made it fit for this time and age, and uh, going along, it fit also for the score. It's just a hundred percent realized movie. Yep it's it's definitely in my top twenty of the decade, probably around Big fifteen. Time, certainly, it's slow and meditative, but you know, yeah, it's definitely great. in the top twenty. Looking at it from like a like a broader, a more objective view, it is a little slow in terms of its, it's buildup, but. Art. It's not what it's about, man. I'll about just the wait until the next it. one. People should have gone to see this movie. Ugh. Well, at so least they gave uh, direct sequels. Yeah, they they gave Denis Dune, so he must have done something right with the studio. Just make a good Dune, damn it. Dune's got a stat cast. We'll see how it goes. The first one was a dumpster fire. Uh, I would love right, if Nate. David Lynch appeared in the new Dune in some capacity. Oh my god, that'd be great. <laughs> it's cancer. He appears as one of the sandworms. <laughs> one of. I thought there was only can, one. Oh my god. He can god. be in the background like Star Wars taking Jack off to space jail. <laughs> uh, all right, Nate. What's your what's your second pick of the evening? My second pick was going to be what we do in the shadows. Um, but since you told me to bring three, I brought three. My next pick is a film titled Mad Max Fury Road. Which I don't think is on either of your top ten list, but I think is a film certainly worth mentioning from this decade. It's definitely worth mentioning. It's one of the most iconic movies of the decade. Definitely one of the the movies of this decade with the most cultural staying power. It's the best action film of the decade and maybe one of the best ever made. Probably one of the best ever made. I think I would argue the best action movie ever made. In terms of, uh, I mean, the story kind of lacks a little bit, but the cinematography and uh, the the set pieces and the acting are just fantastic and grip you literally from the first scene. You're on board and on for this ride. The story is subtle, but it's got, you know, really it's visual characterization that's happening with all of our characters. And there's a there's more than one character arc that's happening in the film. It's well Oh it God, it yes. knows what it needs to be as an action film, and it knows how much story needs to be there underneath in order to make all of the like bombastic spectacle work. And it's like a thin skeleton of well-developed story and character, and then it hangs amazing, beautiful action sequence set pieces on top of that. And that's most of the film. But, you know, there's a lot of like quiet character moments in there that make it push it beyond just a great action film to be one of the best. Exactly. A lesser film would focus more on the spectacle and kind of set the sort uh, uh, and kind of set the story to the side. But this film knows, like you said, Jacob, this film knows exactly how much story to sprinkle in to where the set pieces and the action sequences mean something and you're invested in them and you care about the characters and you want to see, Tom Hardy and uh, Charlize Theron succeed 
and not just like, oh, look at that spectacle. That was cool. Oh, the next one you you care about and they have weight and uh, emotional impact. Yeah, even someone who I, I've never cared much for action movies. This one is undeniably great. There is just so much inventiveness and passion and action behind every aspect of the design that even the most story um even the people who value story over everything can't help but be impressed at the very least impressed with what is happening here and i do like this movie a lot it uh it's a solid like nine out of ten for me but it's one of those things that you can really only get the full experience of on the biggest screen in the loudest room possible Speaking of which, the uh, the lo- the loft in Tucson is doing a a charity screening of Mad Max tomorrow. Oh for, wow! Uh, Australia, the fires down there. Are you going? Please go at least for the quality. I probably Jake. won't. I've already I've already gone and seen it at the loft before, and <sighs> I know it's look. I know it's going to sell out, and I don't really have much disposable income at there the moment. So if it you know if I check an hour before and it hasn't sold out, so that's okay. I understand. I will say the I I was. I did not see the film in theaters during its initial run, which I regret big time, but I was able to see it um, at a later date in theaters, and it is certainly, like Chandler said, a film that is best experienced on the big screen. Although, uh, seeing it on a TV is, it will also, you know, you'll watch, it'll be a good time, but the, the big screen certainly captures the, the spectacle. I mean, fun fact, we watched... Uh... Nathan and I had a a movie marathon one day in January, and it was same day. We watched Grand Budapest Hotel first, then Battleship Potemkin, The Third Man, and Big Fish. And then only after it was after yep. midnight, and I think I think Nate and our and our other roommate it was like twelve thirty wanted to kind of Mad Max head in tuck for the evening. But I'm I but, I go to work early. I was tired. But we here we yeah, were, and I I'm pretty sure I forced Mad Max into the Blu-ray player to and an extent us yes. to watch it. Yes, not not as much as Grand Budapest Hotel, but I no you know pushed for us to keep going, and I think it was a good a good evening. That was a great day to watch a lot of good movies, without question. And uh, to the film's credit and to Jake's credit, I, mean, I was tired as heck and he popped the film in and literally after the first scene I was wide awake I'm like here we go like this film is has my attention I am on board and I think that comes down to both the the direction that George Miller gave and the cinematography just keeping you engaged and the editing honestly the editing's wonderful in this film uh, I think everything ha- kind of hits its peak and the and it, it needs to be credited the little CGI that's used in this film. A lot of practical effects. As a cinematographer, Nathan, would you... Obviously, uh, we talked about a few of the really great-looking movies this decade so far. Mad Max is another one, but do you have any other movies that you'd like to mention that are are some of the best-looking cinematography-wise of the decade? I would say... Honestly, 2017 was a good year. Uh, Dunkirk... It was fantastic, Hoyt von Hoytema. Beautiful. If it was any other year, that film wins it, but Blade Runner 2049 was something else. Also, the same year of 2017 was Mudbound by Rachel Morrison. Beautiful. Gorgeous. Oh, my God. Really established herself as one of the premier 
DPs of of the 2010s. I would also say Ex Machina, honestly, although that is more of a a film that's kind of focused around story. It is very beautiful and well worth uh, seeking out. Her, also Hoytvine Hoytema, and Joaquin Phoenix, hashtag Joker. Beautiful, gorgeous with the color. Um, those are some of the ones just off the top of my head that I can name. I'm sure there are others, and I'm sure Hail the Caesar. listeners will post or comment others. Really? I love Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar is fantastic. Uh, cinematography, I don't know about that, but uh, Coen Brothers, it's, it's, it's underrated it's, as heck. It's in the same vein as Burn After Reading as far as the underrated Coen Brothers films go. Burn After Reading is so funny. Oh my god. I, I think Hail Caesar is just as good. I implore anyone who's only seen it once to see it again, as all good Coen Brothers movies. Amen. I will <laughs> super off topic. We're tangenting on tangents, but the, the first time I saw Lebowski, I hated it. I just thought it was stupid, but here we are. It's my favorite movie ever. Yeah, those those are the films off the top of my head. I want to give a special shout out to Paddington 2. Every single person should see that film if everybody watched that movie the world would be a better place it really would genuinely no it seriously would that film is it's it's perfect i love that movie i, I thought jake was on something when i he told I, me found I needed it. to watch it i discovered it in the the large junk pile of of yearly cinema and it it shone out like a little nugget of gold and actually no it was more like it didn't even look it looked like a little turd and then you polished it and realized it was the biggest piece of gold you ever will ever find it's the biggest gold in the history of cinema that i was in tears by the end of the film i uh, we have video we have video proof of this see, there are, there's proof that i was crying by the end of this film of pure happiness pure happiness this movie single-handedly redeemed all horrible children films before it other than that would you like any closing thoughts before we kick you off of the uh of the podcast nathan um no uh, i was happy I'm, I'm just happy to get on the air i was i was on hold for 45 minutes so it was it was fantastic i was finally able to get on Sorry, we got a lot of phone calls today. I know, I know the boards are lighting up. I was happy. I was just the one click. Thank you guys so much. Of course. It's good. always happy to have you. Who Who is scheduled to go next? I So far, we have discussed three of my ten movies. That being What We Do in the Shadows, Grand Budapest Hotel, and... Wonder Woman. Oh, God. Okay, no, we've only discussed two of them. All right, what's number ten? Number ten, 10 is The Lighthouse. The Lighthouse, 2019. I am a big fan of this movie. Huge fan of this movie. It's like a pirate version of Eraserhead. I love the dialogue. It's so wonderfully archaic. Everything about this movie is wonderfully archaic. The performances, the way they look, the way they dress, the set design, the dialogue. Even some of the like cinematography reminds me so much of like a, a silent era movie. It's such a weird little movie that's about a lot of things. It reminds me a lot of The Shining, which ironically enough, I've never been able to get into The Shining because I never felt 
as entranced by the atmosphere as I do here. I just, there's so many different readings that I've read about this movie and all of them make sense to me. And every time I watch the movie, I'm just amazed at not only the different levels that it's working on metaphorically, but just the insane kind of things they capture on screen from the seagulls to the storms to just the Willem Dafoe monologues that he seems to break out on the turn of a dime. It's just a such a strange movie that I think can only exist in the 2010s. We talked earlier about how uh, movies have been getting a lot more niche, and I think this is like where we hit the pinnacle of take any year, even like 2018 and 2017, a movie like this would never get made. And the fact that it is made and it's so good, masterpiece. Big fan. You know, I don't necessarily agree with you that it's one of the best of the decade, or you might not even be saying that. It's your favorite. But I will say that The Lighthouse is certainly a unique piece of cinema that is well worth watching. And I can probably say that it will be well worth watching many, many years into the future. Oh, yeah. It's timeless. It's timeless. Black and white. Black and white. Archaic dialogue. Great Willem music. Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. Arguably my favorite performance of his. Fantastic. I, I don't really think anything else compares all that. Much. Florida Project, I'd say. He's good in that. Well, yeah, it's a good performance, but it's nowhere. It's not as wonderfully. It's, no, it's iconic. Bombastic yeah. as his performance in The Lighthouse. So yeah. I, I personally really love him in, in Florida Project. I do, too. We will just go on record saying that not Oscar nominated. Such a shame. Huge shame. Huge shame. The man ate dirt for you, Academy, and you turned him down. <laughs> well, your number 10 pick was was very much a personal pick. They're all personal picks. Yeah, but the Grand Budapest Hotel, that's pretty much a, a critical consensus that everyone loves. Yep. It. The Lighthouse was more of a personal You're pick, right. right? You're right. So my number 10 is also a very personal pick. And I might have mentioned it to you once or twice before, but I don't really talk about it all that much. And it's Zero Dark Thirty. Wow. Which I <laughs> think is really out of left field. It is. The Catherine Bigelow and one? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Back in 2012. And partially, part of the reason why it's out of left field is because, A, I, didn't I don't talk about it all that much. But also because it's from way back in 2012, and no one else seems to talk about it anymore, no, you're which right. really bugs me. The Hurt Locker also, I think, similarly gets uh, a bad rip. Zero Dark Thirty is the one with Osama, right? Where they try to kill Osama. Yeah. Or they do. Spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> he dies. Spoilers. Yeah. I might fumble through this a bit, but let me try to explain what captivates me so much about Zero Dark Thirty. Because I certainly think I I'm alone. You might be. Because most people go for the Hurt Locker. Yeah, it, it has a... I don't even give it five stars, by the way. It has a 3.6 on Letterboxd, and 11% of people give it four and a half. I'm looking at it right now. You give it four and a half, yeah. 7% of people give it five, and I'm certainly in that range. I could give it five stars. I certainly, from a personal perspective, it's a five star, but I think more objectively, it's four and a half. And I think a lot of people tend to underestimate it as a film. It's the... For me, it's the procedural thriller. It's the, the terrorism procedural thriller of our, of our yeah, time. Yeah, definitely. I feel like a lot of our movies definitely captured that um, the Iraq war and just the political landscape of the war on terror 
better than anyone else has. Because I feel like a lot of other movies kind of exploit that time. But I feel like she definitely understands the root cause of the conflict. And now I'm excited to watch this. Because I've been wanting to watch this for a while. I've yet to see this. But I love Hurt Locker. Oh, really? Yeah, never seen it. Really? So for me, the Zero Dark Thirty is really supported by this amazing performance by Jessica Chastain. Mm -hmm. And she really gives it her all. You know, she plays this CIA analyst who is... It's very, it's kind of like Zodiac in a way where there is a character that becomes obsessed with finding, finding someone. In this case, it's Osama bin Laden. Yeah. And the whole film is really well executed on a thriller level and on a technical level. The way that different scenes lead into each other, the way different sequences lead into each other. Because it's a narrative that spans years, almost a decade actually. Mm-hmm charting when uh, her character first arrives in the Middle East to when you know she finally gets Osama bin Laden in 2010 or nine whenever it was it's it's a fascinating look at you know it, it is Hollywood of course it's a Hollywoodized version of CIA analysts going after Osama bin Laden and it takes what must have been an exceedingly boring thing of people on computers, following up thousands upon thousands of leads, just finding the needle in the haystack. And I think the movie does an exceedingly great job at really making you feel how kind of almost random it was that they found him, but also the amount of years of work that went into making it happen. It wasn't random, but it it definitely, it has like a feeling of chaos at times when you're like, how is it possible that they did find him in the first place? Because it's just... It's just a house, well-fortified house in a random city in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. That's all it was. You go on this emotional journey with Jessica Chastain. One of the things that really things that puts people off from the film is that it's very, it doesn't really make much of a comment on the torture that happened. It's just kind of showing you Uh it and an unflinching kind of almost perverse uh, kind of viewership. It uses the the terrible methods that the CIA used. There's character development in there for Jessica Chastain, uh, her character, in that she's coming into it in the very beginning of the movie as this kind of naive uh, CIA analyst. Mm -hmm. But it's not really your typical naive kind of character. You just barely get the hint that this is new ground for her before you're thrust into the plot, if that makes sense. Her, your very first scene with her is she's in this room where CIA people are torturing someone and it's difficult to watch. The whole film is filled with difficult things to watch. There's bombings, explosions, and the whole point of it all is that it's emotionally draining on the main character. And it's emotionally draining for you as an audience member as well. This maze, this labyrinth of information that they're trying to find Osama bin Laden. And they finally do. And the SEAL Team 6 scene where they go and get him is really effective thriller making. And it's almost like, it almost feels like a fan fiction of like, what was this like to be with the SEAL Team 6 when they were getting Osama bin Laden? In that way, it's kind of a fantasy in a way. And you get to experience something. But, you know, the way it's shot, it's incredibly realistic and gritty. And then at the very end... 
you just see, you know, as in like something with like Zodiac and everything, like these main characters have to come to terms with the fact that they've just wasted years <laughs> of their lives on this one thing. For me, it it works exceedingly well. I don't even know why it works so well. I just, it, it's very well made. Jessica Chastain is great. Everyone else in it is pretty good. Chris Pratt's in it. He is, very subtly, but he is in it. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting movie for our time as well. Huh. So oh, you got me wanting to see it now. I hope you got something out of that. Long I ramble. did. Ramble. I, I I'm very eager to see it now. Uh, my number nine pick. I don't know if it's on your list at all, but I know it's a movie we both have a lot of adoration for, and that is Francis Ha. Oh yes. I love this movie, and I really tried to justify putting Marriage Story over Francis Ha, but I just can't. I love Francis Ha. I love Greta Gerwig. I think this is the until marriage story. This was uh Bombback capturing the sort of upper class New York ennui in a way that's the most bearable for general audiences. Um I think things like The Squid and the Whale and While We're Young definitely teeter that line quite a bit and making unbearable characters, but you just can't not love Greta Gerwig. I love movies about how aimless your 20s are, and I think this might be the most modern example. It's a movie that doesn't really go to... I mean, it does go to many places. It goes to Paris, but it doesn't really have a big story. It's just sort of... The movie is as aimless as uh, I think its fans are, and it's just a beautiful little representation of that feeling of being lost and not knowing what to do and having all these dreams but not knowing exactly how to achieve them uh greta gerwig's fantastic in this great central performance great writing great dialogue i love the look of black and white it's so simple and it feels a lot like a french new wave movie that that sort of invokes it a lot too and the score is very simple but very nice and it's just it's a nice little slice of life movie that makes me feel better about not having a plan it's comforting it's very comforting for anyone in their, you know, going through high school, high school, college, or just after college in their 20s and still trying to find their way in the mm-hmm. world, it is every time I watch it, I just, A, because Greta Gerwig is just so charming and wonderful. B, at the end, it works out for her in kind of a realistic way. Like everything doesn't work out, but not in the way that it ex- you expect it to work out, but life does work out. She keeps working at it, and eventually she gets to someplace that she wants to. And it's it's hopeful, and that's, you know, that's probably what everyone who has a dream and is working at it and isn't necessarily getting anywhere right now, it's a movie that would be well worth a watch. It is also one of my favorites of the decade. It is not personally on my list, but that's just because I avoided movies that I knew Chandler was going to talk about. Oh, except for one. Yeah, no, I, I found something to replace it Damn with. Damn it, you... All right, what's your next one? Let me continue to make this preface that I made a list uh, that I published on my letterbox of 20 movies that I really love from the decade. That's my actual list. It's not in any order. It's just movies I love. And I took that list and I essentially deleted all the movies that Chandler picked. And I deleted all the movies that I knew were going to be on the Film Sinks top 10 list. Just because I wanted to talk about movies that were personally important to me and not that I wasn't going to get another opportunity to talk about. So this one is Skyfall. Uh. Number nine is Skyfall, my friends. Oh, no. Uh, it gets better after this for you, channel. Okay. So I'll just say that. Skyfall for me, probably even more so than Zero Dark Thirty, it has its flaws. 
it's more so here because it had a personal impact on me and that it was one of the first movies that I watched where I started to understand and grasp the art of cinema. It's also one of the first movies I watched. It's the first Blu-ray I ever watched, but it's the first movie that I watched multiple times in theaters. I think it's the best James Bond movie. That's just How many have you seen? Uh, not too okay, many, so. but I've seen the good ones. Oh, fair. <laughs> or what the, the critical consensus good ones. It's just, it is a thriller and an action movie. It's a movie kind of of the times where it's talking about, I'm thinking of the middle speech that uh, Judy Dench's character makes, where it's like, you may think that the, the Bond, the, the double O section is outdated, but we still really need people like them because who else is going to do the dirty work for us? It's got some meat to it. It's not an action movie that it's just action. It's the first James Bond movie that actually comments on the relationship between James Bond and M and makes something of that relationship. It's kind of a, a mother-son relationship, and it's a mother-son movie. It's about family. That's why it's so powerful. It really is. And it's well-staged, brilliant action, Roger Deakins, it looks amazing, it's just one a, a great action movie, and I think it's underrated. And that's all I'll say. All I remember is a very well-lit burning house in the middle of a field. That's all I remember. I remember Javier Bardem's messed up teeth. I remember liking it. I haven't seen it since 2012, but I remember liking it. My next movie, uh, well, number eight was What We Do in the Shadows. We already discussed it. Uh, number seven. Now, this right here is what I'm going to call the surprise movie of the decade. I don't think anyone thought that Paddington 2 was going to be as good as Paddington 2 was. When I tell people Paddington 2 is one of the greatest movies ever made, people still think I'm joking. But I'm not. Paddington 2 is like that sad feeling that you get from Pixar movies, like the beginning of Up or the or Toy Story 3 as a whole. Imagine that sad gut punch of a feeling in your stomach but inverse it to the happy side of it of a happiness so pure and so powerful that it can bring you to tears and that is paddington 2 paddington 2 is one of those rare perfect movies where every little element works so well and there's so much thought and design put into it and it's just so incredibly wholesome in a decade of some of the most unwholesome films ever seen Ben Wishaw is great as Paddington. His voice is like marmalade in your ears. It's a beautiful little uh, dollhouse slash storybook style that invokes Wes Anderson but doesn't totally rip it off. It is just a super kind, pure-hearted message. Shot amazingly. Hilariously funny. Script is perfect in its setups and payoffs. And it is just... Ugh, it's so good. It is, it's cinematic comfort food that's also healthy for you. Okay, so Paddington 2, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> it's so good. It is just the most wonderfully wholesome thing. And I think the world is a better place for it to be in, in the world. I have literally shared it with my professors and I've gotten thank you notes from people because I made them watch it. And that's all. That's all I can say because that's that's pretty powerful when it's, you force someone movie. to watch something. There is a there is a a much deserved stigma about movies with talking animals. You know, like live CGI type animals. 
And when I saw Paddington, I was like, oh, God, another one of these. And man, this might be the only good one in the bunch, but it is so perfect it excuses the entirety of the subgenre of all of its mistakes. Paddington 2 is, to quote Martin Scorsese, cinema. I'm going to say this. Without being completely like robotic and constructed in a way that is obvious, Paddington 2 is the most perfect example of screenplay structure it is. ever it made. It really is. Like you, you look at – people always point to like, oh, Star Chinatown. Wars for a hero's journey. F*** those movies. <laughs> okay? Paddington 2 is literally definitionally makes use of every – there's not a in the word book. wasted. Not a scene wasted. Every piece of advice that your screenplay professor ever gave you has been implemented to its fullest extent in Paddington. It 2. really has. I don't. I don't know why. I don't understand it. It is a. It is a piece of magic of movie magic that is beautiful and wonderful and whimsical, and it steals from the Grand Budapest Hotel, and I'm okay with a it. A little. And it's just. It's Don't perfect. question why it exists. Just be happy that it does. Da, da, da. What do I have next? Oh, so my next movie is from 2013. It is Hayao Miyazaki's The Wind Rises. <laughs> what? <laughs> I think about the time that we watch this movie a lot because I think about my letterbox review which literally every time a news scene happens it was just me and Nick going what's the main character's name <laughs> I I really out of every single movie on my list I would like you to rewatch The Wind Rises because I think it's genuinely oh I know I like it too I the... gave it a 9 out of 10 oh good okay well <laughs> you just joke about Jiro, it Jiro and... the wind it's rising it's about the artist's journey and it's it, about the kind of the contradictions that can happen when you have an artist who really who loves to make something, uh -huh. but what they love to do it has been twisted and perverted into something that's terrible. Yeah. So in the case of The Wind Rises, Jiro, his life's dream is to make beautiful airplanes and that's all he wants to do. And yet he just happens to live at a time when airplanes are used for World War II and kamikaze missions it very subtly deals with the kind of contradictions and the evils of that war and i think a lot of people complained that it didn't you know comment enough when it first came out people were saying it didn't comment enough on japan's terrible behavior during world war ii it didn't condemn the use of planes during world war ii all i have to say to that is that's not the point it isn't I really hate it when critics and when audiences read their own opinions into a movie and then treat that as a fact about the film. It's like watching Star Wars and saying, oh, I wish it was more of a murder mystery. That's an extreme example, but that's essentially what people tend to no, do. I agree. You know, the sentiment you have with this in World War II or uh, this in the whole it should have gone deeper is kind of the same thing I feel about three billboards when people complain that it's not a very accurate portrayal of race in America. Where I'm like, that's not really what it's about, but yeah. I'm not saying that movie is, is without its issues, because it does. And every time I watch it, I see more. But the racial component is never one that I saw. The race issue is a background issue. It is. It's, it, it is a supporting issue. It's yeah, not the exactly. main. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly in The Wind Rises, yeah. Yeah, The Wind Rises, it's about 
a character. It's a character study of Jiro. It's just kind of like a slice of life in a way. Yeah, and it's so beautifully animated. It's beautifully animated, and the characters are all endearing. One of the lines that I always think about from Princess Mononoke, another film by uh, Hayao Miyazaki. Not a masterpiece. The the main character is told, "You must see with eyes unclouded by hate." Mm-hmm. And this is essentially, this is a movie that could never have been made by an American director. I agree. Because an American director would want to talk about the war when it has really, the movie has almost nothing to do with World War II. Miyazaki comes at it from a place of mutual admiration, where Miyazaki is very much someone who is, I think, tortured by his work in a certain way. Yeah, he's the most wonderful cynic on the planet, that man. He wants to retire every other movie, and yet he comes back, and he seems to be like forced out of retirement by his own brain. But this is the one of all of the movies he wants to quote-unquote retire on. This is, I think, would be the most perfect end to his career. I yes. think. which he's coming out of retirement. This is his last, this was his last movie, but he's making a new one. On the now. one hand, I'd love for this to be the end. On the other hand, I love him, and I want him to make movies as long as he can. It's a beautiful, simple movie. I think it might have been the first foreign film I ever saw in a theater. It's great. Second best Miyazaki movie about planes in wartime. This movie is a movie that I know you're not as fond as I am, which is the case of a lot of movies on my list. And it is Roma. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Why? What is what is it with Roma that you doesn't connect with you? There's so... Uh, oh. I don't know. See, I find a pattern that all these movies about family, like The Farewell... Roma, you just you're not into them as much. Whoa, I am a hardcore fan of shoplifters and still walking. You you also like Marriage Story a lot, which is about I the separation of a family. You know, so. I will give you this. Just slight off topic. I've been wanting to revisit the farewell for a long time, more so than I ever have with Roma. My issues with Roma is that I do think it is incredibly well shot sound design is so good the black and white is so good the production design is so good you're doing my job for me yeah but i just i don't really care about the the main character or the family i never got the feeling that the family really cared about her i still felt like they they sort of treated her like the help and i can't really i can't shake this little Alfonso Cuaron who's just so fond of his housekeeper but still treating his housekeeper like a housekeeper. I know that's a personal thing, but well, it really... Well, it's partly the point, maybe. That, like, she's invited into the family, but at some point, there's still a barrier there. Yeah. Maybe maybe now that I've gone through this entire year of so much class, uh, classist movies, maybe I can see it in a new light. I just remember when I saw it, I was kind of iffy about it. But also, I feel like maybe I saw it on my little HD TV in my room using my TV speakers. Maybe I got to try it in a more cinematic setting, but it's definitely good. It was still like a solid four out of five. I just wasn't as blown away. I watched it uh, at the loft in Tucson, so I got to see it on the big screen. Yeah, I can. I, all right. I can see that I can sway you. I think I saw it twice at the loft. And much like The Farewell, it didn't hit me how much I enjoyed it this until the second time. So you did see The Farewell twice? I did, yes. Okay. And it was always, the second time was always the more impactful of the two, probably because I, Roma in particular, it's not really a movie that has, it's not trying to go anywhere. 
it does have a plot and a through line through the whole thing, but it's more about the the recreation of Caron's like childhood memories and creating like a more sweeping story about family and change, political change in, in Mexico. And there is some some background elements of classism in there, but it's not really the point. Yeah. But the visuals, I have to say, I'm not even trying to necessarily sell this film as one of the best of the decade. It's it's certainly, I think, one of the the best looking and designed movies all all around. Coron's been pretty consistent in that department. Yeah, and it, it for me, it just felt like someone else was sharing their childhood that was so very different from mine, and yet it was the feeling of it just created this emotional reaction of like separate but the same kind of in a way right and being able to experience i think we've talked about this before another point of view of the world the way he chooses to film a lot of it there's some lateral dolly shots that i really love in the film the scene where they're the fire in the forest it's just so visually striking that yeah it, that in the department store scene yeah are the ones that i remember I think my favorite little part comes pretty much in the beginning when the little the, the part that wins me over probably is the part when the little kid and the housemaid are up on the roof and they're oh they're she's lying, lying on their down. backs and they're yeah, looking up yeah, at the sky yeah. and and the little kid was like in my past in my previous life I was a a sailor or something yeah and it's just an adorable little kid and she's just looking out for him and it's it's super simple but it's it immerses you in a completely different world. Crone takes such a care in expressing that to you that I find it hard not to love it, and that's why it's on my list. Now that you're recalling a lot of these scenes, I do think that there there is just a very, very firm understanding of the visual language that it's trying to use, and all those scenes I can recall so vividly. It's just that the actual story, I don't remember. I don't really, really remember what happens. I just remember how it looks when it happens, but. I'll admit it is one of those movies that I've been wanting to go back for for a long time. And it's by no means a bad movie. It, it's probably his most best shot movie. That or Children of Men. But I haven't seen enough of his stuff. Did he do The Revenant? Or is that in your E2? No, that was in your E2. That's in your E2? Okay, yeah. I'm a racist. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's definitely... I, I want to go back to it. Maybe when The Criterion comes out, I'll go back yeah, to it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to buy The Criterion. Okay, I am going to add our surprise guest. I have two guess, uh, two guesses. I hope this will work. All right. Well, I don't know if you want to just chit chat about random stuff. Stupid worst movie you saw in a theater this decade. Ghostbusters twenty sixteen. Wow, he had it right. He had it locked and loaded. You know, I don't really see all that many bad movies in theaters. Yeah, no, same. So. That's what I was thinking. Because like, if I go to a movie, there's a good chance it's because it looked interesting to me. But I will say the biggest disappointment of the entire decade was going to see Tag in theaters. <laughs> My God. I forgot that existed. I did too. And it seemed like such an interesting premise. And they show little bits of the real people at the end. And I'm like, oh, this is so much more interesting. Oh, God, what a boring, unfunny movie. And I saw it on a Monday at like 11 in the, uh, 11 in the morning. I skipped work to go see it. What? Why? Well, because I had a dentist appointment that I left for, and it finished early, and I told him I was going to be gone for the rest of the day, so I thought, eh, I'll go see a movie. Yep, I'd rather have gone back to the dentist. The worst blockbuster I watched this decade was Pirates of the Caribbean, oh my God. Dead Man Tell No Tales. Same! That actually might be worse than Tag! Oh my <laughs> God, what a stupid movie. 
I did not have it the the pleasure of seeing it in a theater. Oh, I did. But it was it's not even like it's not the worst thing I've seen. I'll just say that. It's just it's so not even dumb. terrible. It it's dumb. It's just the emphasis on the word dumb. Everyone involved with that movie is just so tired of it at this point. As someone that as I've stated, I love the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. I'll even say that they're better than uh Indiana Jones, you know, you don't have to agree with me, but I think so. And God, this is just worse than any of the Indiana Jones ever made. Oh, what a piece of shit. Thank you for reminding me that existed. Oh, God. That's my answer. <laughs> I hate that movie. And I love Javier Bardem. Oh, I hate that movie so much. It's got a lot of okay actors in it that are just giving you their worst. The bank That's heist That's all scene. I remember is the bank heist. It might be the most schlocky, <laughs> not even good big schlock. budget thing. Oh, God. 